Arthur Dewey is professor of theology at Xavier University. The tendency, among, particularly among North Americans, is that we don't want to admit that we're in a power play or in a variety of power plays. And the reason we don't is because we don't have the words for it. And so uh, because we don't have the words, we sit dumbly by while things happen to us and we feel everything is out of our control. Sadaf Asadi and Hanan Al-Zubaydi are university students in Portland. They brought the Ramadan tent project to the United States last year. This year, they do it again. All of us are just college students with no real um, previous experience in, in hosting such a large event. But it worked out successfully last year. I just want to make sure that we're well represented within the three Abrahamic religions and also outside of that. Any, anybody is welcome, and it never hurts to learn something new about a different faith. It's it's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network and the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schott. So Ramadan is um, the holy month, and so it's the month that the Quran was brought to Muslims in full. And um, people will fast from sunrise to sunset, and there are several reasons for this. Um, some of them are just like getting to understand and be grateful for the things that you do have. You have one month to try and step into the shoes of some of the other people around the world and kind of experience what they go through. The Ramadan Tent Project was a creation of students in London. It's an open iftar, a breaking of the fast in which the public is invited. The first ever Ramadan Tent Project in the United States was held last year in Beaverton, Oregon. The students who brought it to Portland will do it again this year. We'll hear about this event and we'll hear about the heart of Islam from two bright and compassionate university students, Sadaf Asadi and Hanan Al-Zubaydi. But first, I speak with Arthur Dewey, professor of theology at Xavier University. Usually what saves us are the unnoticed acts of decency and humanity um, where people give themselves away unthinkingly and without reserve. And these are the things that, are, that don't count, and they don't make it to the newspapers or anything like that. When we hear the word theology, we may think we're going to engage in esoteric reflections about divinity and the afterlife. But theology, at its best, is not about God or gods, but about life and its meaning and the myths that drive us. Arthur Dewey is professor of theology at Xavier University in Cincinnati. He is a scholar of the historical Jesus and a fellow of the West Star Institute, popularly known as the Jesus Seminar. He says that theology is resonant. At its best, it lends rhythm and rhyme to the raw energy of life. It improvises on this world without trying to escape to a heaven somewhere else. We're going to talk about his book, Wisdom Notes, Theological Riffs on Life and Living via Skype from Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome, Art, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, another radio person for, uh, let's see, how long uh, were you doing these radio spots there in uh, Cincinnati? A dozen years. A dozen years. Yeah, and you came up with, uh, um, gosh, about 200, 200, over 200 of them, right? Yeah, we actually had to cut them. Uh, we, there were about 80 of uh, the commentaries and editorials that we cut. So, yeah, we had a curate. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what this book is, a collection not only of the, uh, of the radio commentaries, a, a number of them, 200, uh, over 200 of them, and as well as uh, fourth R editorials. Tell me what the fourth R is. Well, the fourth R is the, uh, you might say, the public face, printed face for the uh, West R Institute. And it tries to, uh, to a very broad pub, uh, public uh, detail in very good English what's really going on 
uh, in terms of, uh, you might say, the origins of Christianity. And and the editor, um, Bob Miller, has a remarkable uh, facility of gathering people who can write clearly and to the point. Um, and I I usually write the editorial each each issue. And you've been involved with the work of Westar, uh, popularly known as the Jesus Seminar, although it's more seminars than just about Jesus, uh, for uh, how many years? Since 1986. That's nearer when it's been it began. A long time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I actually was invited uh, after the first initial meeting uh, when Funk gathered 32 uh, fellows together. Uh, they decided they needed more help. And they uh, they sent out letters of uh, welcome, and I couldn't go for the, the the next two meetings because I didn't have the money. Finally, I gathered the money together, and I've been going ever since. And I, I shudder to think how much money I've spent over these years. <laughs> right. And, uh, well, you know, and you are a professor of theology at Xavier mm-hmm. University. Um, right. Talk about a little bit, because your, your, your book is a theological book, but uh, we're Mm-hmm. What is theology for you, and how is that different from religion? Well, theology is a reflection on the depths of our living together, of our life together. And uh, the difference between religion and theology is that with theology, you step back and you start asking questions about how is this happening? What's going on? What does it mean? And um, I like to to talk about it in regard to depth, the depth of our life together, and not to uh, immediately go to God, because theology means conversation or thinking or reflection on God. But the question really becomes for us in the 21st century, how do we, how do we see the, the mystery in our lives? And for me, that means a, a switch from the usual avenues, religious avenues, to the more human possibilities where I look for the cracks in our experience. Uh, and I take cues from from the past. I take cues from poets. I take cues from various religious traditions. I think that's one of the reasons we, we, we look at religious traditions, because they are filled with experience. And... Um, it's not that we want to simply imitate past experience, but we, when we rub shoulders with people, uh, we begin to understand that we're more complicated and perhaps there are avenues and ways of entrance into mystery. And of course, when you're talking I, about... I made myself perfectly obscure. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did, because I think uh, when oftentimes theology is conversation, as you mentioned, the, the little word, talk, God talk, but um, yeah. but we're so moving beyond the idea, certainly in any ways of God as a supernatural being or anything, however mm-hmm. we use the word, that uh, that the real essence of it wasn't necessarily perhaps about the the beings the gods as much as it really was you says you say the depth uh, the depth of life mm-hmm. yeah and and you know uh, John Cupid and others have pointed out that uh, what we've done in the past of course is we've extrapolated from the depths of our experience and we've you might say we've put the gods up on a shelf called to heaven and um, what happens when you uh, you don't play that game of of putting things on the shelf. Uh, what happens when you start actually looking around and saying, okay, what, what does this mean? And uh, we, I think we can gain some uh, strategies of entrance and attack from the past, uh, but we, we're certainly going to be using new ones. Ignatius Loyola has a, has a meditative technique which is called composition of place. And I, I, I found that almost every commentary and every editorial that I make is actually an imaginative composition. And it's not only a place where I try to situate myself in a situation, but it's also a composition of time. And uh, as I pointed out in the preface to the book, the um, my original uh, commentaries were less than 60 seconds. <laughs> and and so you really had to be very, very uh, keen on what you would had to say. You had to say it quickly, um, and then sometimes they bumped it up to ninety seconds. Uh, for for a few months, I actually had two and a half minutes. Uh, <laughs> so, 
I've, I've been always very, very careful about how to use words and, and uh, to use them with as much possibility uh, in the least amount of time and space. Well, let's yeah. yeah, let's share one of those. Would you, if you oh. wouldn't mind? I'm, I'm, I was. It's about baseball. Uh, late afternoon squall oh. in Cincinnati. Living in Cincinnati, you realize when you first come here that there is one religion in Cincinnati, and that is baseball. Hmm. And if you don't understand that, you really don't understand Cincinnati. Of course, there is a, a, a competing religious act, and that's called the Bengals. But that's. <laughs> but let me let me read this. Okay, it it says. Tonight begins the final series for the Reds. Before the season slides away in a flood of disappointment for many, I would carve a scene from last Saturday. My favorite pitcher, Pete Harnish, was slated against the Astros. Things did not go well. Demetri Young played the leadoff batter's fly ball into a double. Bagwell soon brought him home. Back-to-back home runs gave the Astros a three-run lead two innings later. Although the Reds fought back to get within a run, time and luck seemed to be running out. Then, as the bottom of the eighth began, the heavens opened. For two hours, we contemplated the late afternoon downpour. It was as if Hiroshige, the famous Japanese woodcutter, worked his magic on this field of dreams. Slanting lines of rain cut down on humans scurrying for cover. Finally, the skies cleared. Only the faithful were left. Out of the 32,000, about 200 remained. My son Nick and I stood behind the bullpen. We watched Franklin, the left-hander, and Sulzowski, the righty, warm up. Franklin's ball was moving. You could catch up with the righties. After Franklin got Casey to ground out, Sulzowski was brought in. He promptly gave up two homers to Ochoa and Steins. This was baseball at its purest. For the space of an inning, something occurred that does not happen often in the major leagues. This was not for those fans who believe a baseball game is a constant grazing event. This was for the resolute. Nothing was left. No title, no championship, just the game itself. I cheered each pitch, each pop of the glove, each crack of the bat. It was beautiful. It was Zen. If you're just joining us, my guest is Arthur Dewey. He's the author of Wisdom Notes, Theological Riffs on Life and Living. It's a collection of radio commentaries and uh, essays uh, about life, baseball, Zen. And you have another one on the sports theme that I think gives a, uh, a counterpoint to that. It's a Super Bowl prayer. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's what, 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 was, what was happening in your mind when you decided on that one? Well, I, I consider the Super Bowl to be a major religious holiday in the United States. And unfortunately, people don't take it seriously as a religious holiday. And by that I mean, in the ancient world, nobody would ask a person, do you believe in God? They would simply observe their devotions. The way in which um, the person observed, they, they, would, they would basically betray their God or goddess. So I decided that, of course, the Super Bowl needs a, a hymn. There was a poem by Howard Nemiroff many, many years ago. Uh, it was a short poem, but it was a fun poem about uh, how America was just getting bigger and better under Eisenhower. And so uh, I remembered that, and I decided, let's just do the Super Bowl. So that's how it, that's how it came about. Uh, here it goes. A Super Bowl prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, moms and dads, sons and daughters, all those in the stadium and all those watching around the world, in pubs and at tailgates, at parties and online, in hospitals and in Baghdad bunkers, let us raise our eyes to the end zone screen and watch as cameras in the Super Bowl blimp catch the vapor trails of NORAD angels patrolling our skies, keeping us safe and secure so that we may avert our gaze from all that troubles us or causes us to doubt anything and consign any civil disturbances to oblivion. Let it not be as it was in Sumer, in Babylon, or in Rome. Let it not be thus with us, an empire whose time has come, proclaiming Bud and Tostitos with liberty for all around the world. 
Let us gird up our loins by pre-emptying our bladders, icing our beers, and stocking our snack trays, so that we might be ready upon our couches or beside our barbecues to enjoy our commercial antiphons, revel in their special effects, and resolve to wear out our plastic to keep our economy bullish. But our halftime show provide wisdom, teaching our young that irrational exuberance can be co-opted by seven-figure contracts, encouraging our middle age that they may still be enhanced to continue to get satisfaction, reminding our elderly that this is what they work for all their lives, but to see what it means to know our place on the sidelines or on the couch, whether in halter tops and pom-poms or holding mics or munching popcorn. Oh, yes. Let us learn how the few, the proud, and the strong, those with influence and money, or a cousin on the team, can get to join the heavenly chorus of fans, robed in yellow, black, and blue. Above all, yes, above all, let us replay the face of our warrior God, again and again, arising from the pile-up, from the testosterone spaghetti of arms and legs, so that we may know what our virtual life is all about, as we stay tuned to the greatest show on earth, where the beatific vision comes in HD TV. Amen. A Super Bowl prayer, Art Dewey. Um, that really is the religion of empire in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. You touch on that quite a bit um, uh, throughout Wisdom Notes. I do, and 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 partially it was because I was coming into uh, coming in close quarters with the whole reality of the American Empire and what that meant to all of us in in this country, and uh, yeah, and and how do we how do we deal with it? And and sometimes I would have to actually go back to the ancient myths, especially the Enuma Elish, where uh, the god Marduk. Uh, maintains order through controlled violence. And we seem to be playing that game and that uh, legend out again and again and again. Yeah, that's uh, in your uh, commentary, The Mother of Battles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk yes, about the Anumalish yeah. story. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is when, when Saddam Hussein used the phrase The Mother of Battles, he was actually using a phrase from the Anumalish Leash. And I don't know how many people caught it. I know I did, but uh, certainly um, the Bush administration never caught it. Uh, but he basically, in, in in saying this is the mother of battles, he was basically saying, if the Americans tangle with us, they involve themselves in the story. And indeed, uh, because they won, because the Americans won, they in fact have assumed the, the uh, mantle of Marduk. Yeah, so he wasn't necessarily uh, talking about uh, that it was just going to be such a uh, – that he is going to be mother of all battles and an epic battle and we're going to – he's going to be so powerful and Saddam would win. It's going to be a matter that America would be caught up into the mythology of, um, yeah. of, of violence, redemptive violence. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, you know, we were completely blind to that in one sense. Now, I, now another scholar, of course, Walter Wink, uh, I remember he sent me the third volume of his book on the powers, uh, the very, in fact, the very night that the Americans started the bombing of Baghdad, I was coming back from Boston and I was feeling extremely low. And uh, there was this manuscript, of thir- the third volume, uh, on uh, right in front of me in the mail and that literally saved my life, I think, in terms of psychological adjustment. I worked through that book and the manuscript for two weeks, and uh, I was very grateful for Walter sending that to me. It, uh, it, it helped work through the whole question of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his book "Engaging the Powers." Uh, yeah, that was that, that that was a powerful book that yeah changed my thinking too. Do you have do you can you have "Mother of Battles" in front of you? I could give people that sense of what that story is about. Yeah, before we, this was done in actually this was done in 1998, 
So this was uh, actually um, when they were thinking of going to war, even this is before 9-11. So this is uh, this is this this anticipated lots. Before we go to war again, let me tell you a very old story. Hints of this tale have slipped out in remarks by Saddam Hussein, as he alluded long ago to the mother, mother of battles. The, f- the phrase comes from the ancient Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish. Originally, two primordial beings, Apsu and Tiamat, male and female, engendered the divine elements. But these gods rebel against their begetters and succeed in killing Apsu. Tiamat, however, escapes the revolt, creates a slew of monsters, marries the chief one, Kingu, and initiates a war of revenge upon her offspring. Tiamat spawns enormous serpents, chock full of venom. Cowed by her power, the gods quake in their divine boots until a younger god, Marduk, declares himself their champion and takes on the mother of all. Mounting the storm, his terrible chariot, Marduk confronts her. Why did you have to mother war? Quickly capturing Tiamat in a net of the four winds, he shoots an arrow in her belly, cuts her womb, smashes her skull. Her blood streams to the ends of the universe. The world is fashioned from her carcass and from her consort's bloody body, human beings are formed. This story was sung on New Year's Day in Babylon to honor Marduk's victory. Civilized order is preserved by violence. Whoever conquers has the favor of the gods. Life is combat. Since our very origin is violent, killing is in our blood. Unrelenting control is the condition of human existence, the price for order. One might conclude that this is Saddam Hussein's script, but it is not his alone. The New World Order was proclaimed by an American president after the Fertile Crescent was ripped apart by a desert storm. And now we may once more unwittingly prove that we are caught in the same violent net. Arthur Dewey reading the uh, Mother of Battles from his radio commentary series uh, that is collected in Wisdom Notes, Theological Riffs on Life and Living. And that really is the heart of, uh, of theological reflection, uh, to be able to find the words ancient and modern to, to critique uh, the, the myths that drive us. Yes, that's exactly right, John. That's exactly right. Uh, one of the things I find happening today is that we are in dire poverty of language. I say this to my students and to workshop participants that the, uh, uh, the tendency, among, particularly among North Americans, is that we don't want to admit that we're in a power play or in a variety of power plays. And the reason we don't is because we don't have the words for it. Um, and so uh, because we don't have the words, we sit dumbly by while things happen to us and we feel everything is out of our control. The ancients, on the other hand, if they were in a situation which was out of their control, they immediately dipped into myth into prayer, into these words, and they at least would call these power plays by certain names. So, for example, if somebody falls in love, the ancients would immediately say that Aphrodite is present. And, you know, what do we today do? We talk about our glands. Um, it doesn't really do the same. Um, so we we do need uh, to appreciate uh the language and the imaginations of the past, not that we imitate them, but we see that they were getting somewhere with them. You can see this in Hinduism, too, in in the variety of the gods and goddesses. They also are trying to speak to the realities of human life. Um, And then we can critique. We can see the limits of the language. uh, But at least when you have a language, all languages, you can you can use that, you can change it, you can amend it, you can even reject it. But if you don't have any language, you sit there dumbly. And that's, uh, I think that's rather sad. 
that I really uh, smiled um, when I read uh, your essay about the new Adam Smith, in which you oh, yeah. uh, t- uh, mentioned to the economics uh, department chair, I assume it was, that it was a department of theology. <laughs> Could yes. you, can you yes. talk about that? I don't really have time to read that whole essay, but uh, no, no, give but us a summary of that. If you, if, you, <laughs> if you observe modern universities, uh, and if you're, you're alert to power plays and you're alert to liturgies and, and various things like that, then, then you have to say, okay, what, what part of the university caters to the so-called powers that be? And it's, it's not seminaries. It's, it's really business schools. And, and in fact, uh, they even have protocols. You, you, you know, you have your liturgical garments, your, your suits, and your, your, you know, your professional dress code and all that. Uh, but there's there are even ways of approach, and and part of the business school uh, process is to it's really like a seminary. You you are indoctrinated into particularly neoliberalism, and um, and uh, and usually without anybody ever asking the question where it is. I sometimes ask my students if how many of them are taking a course in economics, and you know three quarters would raise their hand, and I would say. Have you ever discussed theology in the class? And they would shake their heads. No. And I said, well, you're at a Jesuit school. You should be. Get your money back. Um, they they don't want to go the next step. I had a graduate student who was actually a, a vice president in a bank who did an incredible piece on the theology of accounting. And I I recommended that he try to publish it. He, he His life went in different directions, so he didn't. But I thought it was a wonderful case study of somebody who said, okay, we're going to take accounting systems, and then we're going to ask the question, what do they value, and why do they value this and rather than that? And what he exposed, of course, was that there were assumptions about what was important and what wasn't. And that matched up, if you will, to the powers that be. Yeah. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. My conversation with Arthur Dewey continues after the break. Still to come, I speak with two university students who are bridging gaps, making connections, and bringing the Ramadan Tent Project, an open iftar, to the United States. Stay with us. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock, and I'm speaking with Arthur Dewey. He's a professor of theology at Xavier University in Cincinnati and the author of Wisdom Notes, Theological Riffs on Life and Living. Now, you are a scholar of the historical Jesus. That's Uh, right. What have you been able to glean from Jesus? Uh, One of your uh, collections is Jesus of Nazareth, Presidential Timber, uh, kind of a wonderful critique of of what the world would be like, I suppose, if if the values of Jesus were... uh, followed mm-hmm. yeah yeah well you know it's it's, it's interesting uh, if you begin to rub shoulders with the historical jesus you get uncomfortable because he's he's not somebody who is your invisible best friend um he delivers words of wisdom shrewd words of wisdom that you have to test and you cannot simply memorize them salute them and let it go on that no the uh, the wisdom tradition of israel says that you have to take these words seriously and you, but you have to test them now in your own experience. Now, you might say, well, how did that happen? Well, Mahatma Gandhi tested the words of Jesus, and he came up with ahimsa, nonviolence. And Martin Luther King learned from Gandhi. Um, so that the – this is a dangerous character, this Jesus. He, he gives you shrewd peasant wisdom that, that challenges you to really rethink and reimagine – the way things are. Uh, for example, um, I've been toying around um, with the phrase "the atmosphere of God." When I use the phrase "atmosphere of God," I'm, I'm trying to suggest that um, 
we do have the possibility of living in an, an alternative reality system. Um, this is not like uh, the uh, Trumpians' alternate facts, but it is a conscious um, attempt to say that what seems to be the given is not necessarily everything. And I like to use the phrase atmosphere because it's not something we can control. We share in it, all of us, just as we share in the air we breathe. Nobody controls it. But again, that's a metaphor, and uh, it's referring basically to there are depths in our lives together that we discover with each other over time and happily are surprised by it. Arthur Dewey uh, is the author of Wisdom Notes, Theological Riffs on Life and Living, a collection of uh, of radio uh, commentaries as well as essays from the 4th R uh, magazine of the uh, Jesus Seminar, the West Star Institute. Your last one published there, um, A Vacation Reverie, uh, written yes. to your, your great, great, great grandchildren, obviously, into the future. Um, mm-hmm. Took a... Uh, it takes so well. I don't know. What's tell me the tone of that and what, what's behind well, it? Well, it, 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 it actually, I was in Italy at the time at a place called Laverna where Francis of Assisi had retreated. It's a mountain, and uh, he had been um, discouraged by the fact that the Franciscans basically were running him out of his own order, and uh, he was wondering whether or not his life was worth it. So there among the moss and the rocks, he had visions. and uh, So I went up there with, with some friends. We were rethinking the exercises of Ignatius. And in the process, um, I began to uh, imagine the future. Uh, in the exercises of Ignatius, you, you have these contemplations you, about who Jesus is and things like that. But I, I said, you know, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to bring, what what would an atheist, how would an atheist do the exercises? How would somebody who was an agnostic do the exercises? And one of the things that struck me was that one could have a conversation with the child. And so I began to say, okay, what would, what would happen if I talked to the great, 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 great grandchild? What could I say to that one? And uh, besides, forgive us. And so that's that's where it began. And um, it went sort of all over the place in, in one sense. I tried to ex- explain why we had screwed up royally. But I also pointed out, because I've seen this again and again, that usually what saves us are the unnoticed acts of decency and humanity, um, where people give themselves away unthinkingly and without reserve, and these are the things that are, that don't count, and that don't make it to the newspapers or anything like that. And I'm convinced by that that the the things that have kept us alive are those times when other people did something decent for us, and. Uh, they might not even have known it, but without it, we wouldn't be alive today. But then there are people who intentionally have done good things at their expense, uh, and they you don't know about it or you don't think about it. But those are the things, I think, that really keep you alive. So that's what I was thinking about with this, that, that somehow the, the little ones – uh, as I point out, that the mammals were around with the dinosaurs, and the mammals were basically underfoot. Well, what happened? Well, the dinosaurs get wiped out and the mammals take over. You would never have thunk it during the age of the reptiles. Um, so it's those little unnoticed moments and aspects that I've been focusing on in many of these essays and commentaries great book, Wisdom Notes, Theological Riffs on Life and Living, a collection of uh, radio commentaries and essays by uh, Arthur Dewey, professor at uh, Xavier University. Arthur, thank you so much uh, for being with me today and for uh, making this book for us. Thank you, John.
That is audio from the call to prayer that was given at sunset at last year's Ramadan Tent Project in Beaverton, Oregon. Ramadan Tent Project is a London-based organization with a goal of social change. Its mission is to provide iftar, the dinner to break one's fast, to Muslims as well as anyone else during the holy month of Ramadan. In 2016, several university students brought the Ramadan Tent Project to the United States, and they're going to do it again. We're going to talk about Ramadan, Islam, and social change. In the studio are the organizers, Sadaf Asadi and Hanan Al-Zubaydi. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. Last year was the first Ramadan Tent Project, right, in the country, and now it's the second. And that was a lot of work last year. It was a lot of work. Are you ready for it again? I think we are. We're really excited. Yeah, Yeah, as ready as we'll ever be. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about, um, a little bit about each of you. Sadaf? So um, I'm a fourth-year dental student at the OHSU School of Dentistry. I'm going to be graduating in June. Um, Trying to find a job right now. (laughs) I found this organization through Facebook, kind of followed them. Um, they started in London and kind of branched out to various cities across the across the world. Um, and I noticed that they didn't have a USA site. So I literally emailed every Muslim person I know in Portland and based on those replies formed a group. And uh, we ended up having the very first Ramadan Tent Project open iftar in the United States last year. That was like, that's fantastic. And Hanan, uh, what about uh, you? You were a student? Yeah, I am uh, currently at the Graduate School of Education at Portland State. I'm getting a degree in Educational Leadership and Policy, um, and I knew about the Ramadan Tent Project from Sadaf. Um, she, I literally got an email from her, and I'd known her for a little bit, but I was like, yeah, I'm on board. That sounds really interesting. So, so this connection of the Ramadan Tent Project kind of brought you two together, increased your friendship. Yeah, it really did. I knew who Hanan was, but but we had never really um, hung out together or anything like that. I would just see her at the mosque every once in a while and at PSU sometimes, and that was it. Um, But our group just became so close last year through all the work and everything we had to go through. So, What, What mosque is this? We're all from various mosques throughout the city, so um, we attend the Imam Mahdi Center of Portland. Um, Several of our friends attend different masjids around um, Portland, so the committee is made up of different masjids. Okay, let's talk about the Ramadan Tent Project. What is it exactly? Um, It's an initiative to feed the homeless, um, increase people's knowledge about Islam, and just give them a chance to see what Islam is all about. Um, unlike what they hear on the news or see in the newspapers, uh, to just bring people together while sharing a meal. So it's a really beautiful message, and because of that, um, the sharing of the meal, it's happening during Ramadan, which is the holy month for Muslims where you fast from sunup to sundown. And at the end of the day, when you break your fast, which you have that meal called iftar, and it could be anything, um, is when people really come together and they share their experiences. And so we wanted to... Uh, broaden that and welcome the public to have an iftar meal with us. And, and in London, they have it like every every night mm-hmm. of, of for the whole Ramadan for a month. But uh, the Ramadan tent project that's going to happen uh, in the Portland metro uh, is going to be three nights, right? Just three nights, yeah, Memorial Day weekend in May. All right, so May, what are the dates? May 27th, 28th, and 29th? Yes. yes. And, and where is it going to be? At the Muslim Educational Trust in um, Beaverton. And so this is just open for anybody? Do they need to make a reservation, just show up? or Just walk right in. It's going to be slightly different than last year because this time it's going to be indoors. Um, but you can expect to walk in. It's going to be later in the day, so probably around uh, 7 or 7.30 or so. We still have to determine the exact times because it has to do with when we can break our fast. Uh, and that also varies within the Islamic traditions, and so we're trying to figure that out right now. But later in the day, and you walk in, and uh, you're going to enter the main hall, which is where the event is going to be held at, which is the gym at the MET. And we're going to have rows on the ground. So if you attended last year, you're familiar with this. People sat on the ground. Uh, we're trying to keep the same tradition, um, kind of going along with how, depending on where you are in the Middle East, maybe you would perhaps do this. Um, sitting on the ground, everybody next to each other, and uh, we are going to have three speeches, a different one every night. 
The first night, we're going to have a Muslim speaker. The second night, we're actually going to have a Catholic nun this year. And the third night, we are going to have a rabbi um, come and speak. So you're going to have three short speeches. Um, and then food will be served, and that'll give everybody an opportunity to just eat and talk to one another and learn from one another. Tell me about Ramadan itself. What, what is the meaning of this celebration for people who might not know? So Ramadan is um, the holy month, and so it's the month that the Qur'an was brought to Muslims in full. And um, people will fast from sunrise to sunset, and there are several reasons for this. Um, Some of them are just like getting to understand and be grateful for the things that you do have, because I think one of the biggest messages is also like, we're getting together, we're breaking a fast, but some people don't actually have that opportunity. And so... That's one of the messages of Ramadan. Also, just like community coming together. Um, Any other messages? Um, Just you have one month to try and step into the shoes of some of the other people around the world and kind of experience what they go through. Not not in full because at the end of every day you're going to break your fast and you have your family around you and you get to eat. as much as you want, really, and you can have water and you have um, clothes to clothe yourself and all of that, but there are people who don't have that. And and a lot of times um, in our day-to-day lives, we just forget because we're so busy with school and work and everything else that we have to go through. Um, and so it's just a month to kind of remind you um, that there are people out there who don't have everything that you have, and so be grateful for what you have. Also, just like remembering God and piety and humbleness. There's just so many messages that you gain throughout the experience and um, that we learn just from fasting and giving back is probably the biggest message of all. And you mentioned uh, at the very beginning uh, of, of the, the homeless being invited to participate, uh, the houseless, the hungry. Yes, of course, the homeless are invited. And I know that sometimes this is difficult due to transportation means or um, just not being able to find the place. Or, but what we do is whatever food that we have left over at the end of the third night, um, that none of it is thrown out. Uh, we give that to homeless shelters. So that ties along with the message of, of Islam is, is don't throw things away, don't take things for granted. Um, that food that you're just going to throw away in the trash can can go to somebody and could feed them. So we do that, and um, they are invited. If We would love to have um, the homeless population join us. I'm speaking with Sadaf Asadi and Hanan Azubaidi, and they are organizing the Ramadan Tent Project 2017. In 2016, they had organized the first one uh, in the United States, and that was in Beaverton, Oregon. And this one is also going to be in Washington County at the Muslim Educational Trust, or MET, and that is May 27th, May 28th, and May 29th at uh, around sunset. Now, uh, the two traditions of Islam, the two main ones, I I, kind of compare it for Christians to Catholic and Protestant, I know, but but it's kind of the Shia and Sunni. Uh, and you have fast um, the prayer uh, at the sunset at different times. Mm-hmm. I, I'm always curious, how does that work out? How do they, it's, it's because they're calculating when sunset begins or ends or? I think it's just different interpretations on when, because um, we break our fast at Maghrib prayer, and so different interpretations of when Maghrib actually is, is what accounts for those differences. Okay, so, but I know it's very precisely calculated, about to the minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember last year, it was uh, very interesting because the two different traditions each had a prayer. Mm-hmm. And um, so for people who uh, are non-Muslim and they may be a little nervous about what to do, um, can they participate in the prayer? Should they watch the prayer? What Do you have advice uh, whatever they'd like to do. If they'd like to join us, they're perfectly welcome to do that. Um, the more the better. Actually, for prayer, for congregational prayer, it's good to have as many people as possible. Um, so they can join us, and they can either go through the motions of uh, the kneeling and all of that, or they could just stand or sit and just do their own prayer, um, or they can sit and watch us, uh, whatever they like to do. Yeah. You talked right at the beginning. This is um, the Ramadan Tent Project is about bringing this tradition to non-Muslims to to bridge um, gulfs and gaps, perhaps to 
increase connection, and and you also mentioned to end some stereotypes. Can you talk about that a little bit? What uh, what are some of the stereotypes or the prejudices that you have faced? I think. Uh, just mainstream media kind of paints this image of Muslims being violent and um, barbaric people. And I think that's one of our driving messages is we're a bunch of students who want to get together and want to share a meal. And Islam is a very, it's so diverse and there's so much beauty and diversity. And so we're just trying to get that message across and show people that there are different kinds of Muslims than what you're shown in the media. In more recent times, within the last few months, has there has there been more uh, aggression or active action against against you or against Muslims that you know of? Yeah, there was some a little bit more aggression, but at the same time, there was a lot more love, and I think that we've had more people come to us and like tell us that we're welcome and welcome here, and that they want that they like want to embrace us and be a part of something like this than we have had incidents where people were aggressive or disrespectful. So, um, yeah, there was, a, I think, an increase in that kind of mentality we saw nationally, but at the same time, like here in Portland, I think we saw a lot of love from people. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. And, and, and certainly an incredible amount of love from your end to be able to host this and offer uh, the Ramadan, uh, this really holy month, this uh, sacred part uh, to a wider community. Yes. Tell me more about what Ramadan has been for you growing up. I absolutely love Ramadan. Um, I think that we at our mosque growing up used to come together and break our fast, and then we would stay up all night together just hanging out. We'd walk to 7-Eleven and get a bunch of junk food. And um, I think that it just, like, really strengthened. I had, like, developed a lot of friendships and different community members because of Ramadan. I think it really did that for me. And it is a challenge, I think. Last year, it was in June, and so we're talking the sun's out a lot of the day. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's fasting from, and it really does. I mean, it changes people. That's physically difficult, Mm -hmm. or it can be. Yeah, it is, especially if if you have to go to school. uh, (laughs) And work. And work, and it's not like you could just take a break from life (laughs) to fast for this. And so you really learn how to be more patient and more understanding, <laughs> even though you've been hungry for several hours. Even if you're hangry, you, <laughs> you really learn. <laughs> but, you know, the Quran also says in talking, I believe, about um, the Ramadan and the fast, is that um, uh, God uh, does not do this to make it difficult or cause hardship. Is that right? So it's the idea of one person's conscience on how they want to participate in this. Yes. Yes, definitely. And you are definitely not supposed to fast if you have any illnesses or are sick or are pregnant or for whatever reason you just feel weak and it, it, it hurts you physically and you cannot fast, you should not. Um, and God specifically says that in the Quran. This is only for people who are uh, physically able to withstand the hunger and the thirst. I think also it's a lot scarier than it sounds. Um, obviously, like going without food and water for a very long you mean, time. You mean it's uh, the, what, what you're saying? It's not as scary as it sounds. Yeah. Okay. Is that what I said? <laughs> <laughs> you um, said it's scarier than oh, it sounds. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like I've been fasting, but um, I think that just the you get used to it. Your body adjusts, and so you can you can live without food or water for a couple of hours. <laughs> Now, last year, there were about a couple of hundred each night, weren't there? If I remember correctly, over the three nights, we had about 600 people. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a big, and this could even be larger. It could even be larger, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> getting a little nervous here. Uh, you did. Uh, it was so much. Uh, I, I enjoyed that so much. It was the best event of the year. For oh, me, thank uh, you. And, and celebrating that with And So I, I do encourage everyone to come to the Ramadan Tent Project, at least one of the evenings, uh, the 27th, 28th, 29th of May at the Muslim Educational Trust on uh, Shoals Ferry Road um, in uh, Tigard. Anything that you'd like to, uh, else to say about uh, the Ramadan Tent Project? I just hope as many people as possible show up. Uh, that they come and support us. All of us are just college students with no real um, previous experience in, <laughs> in hosting such a large event. But it worked out successfully last year. 
Um, and thank you to you also, John, for, for letting us have the event in the backyard of your church. And uh, I just want to make sure that we're well represented within the three Abrahamic religions and also outside of that. Any, anybody is welcome, and it never hurts to learn something new about a different faith. Absolutely. Now, is there a website or a Facebook page or something that people can go to to, to find out more information or get the address or anything like that? Uh, we do have a Facebook event page. I believe if in the Facebook search box you just type Ramadan Temp Project Portland that it should pop up. Uh, but we also have our website for donations because uh, we're still still currently accepting donations. We can't put on this event without everyone's contributions. Uh, so we'd like to encourage you to donate uh, if possible. And also if you're interested in in volunteering with the Ramadan Tent Project, um, please feel free to contact us at rtppdx at gmail.com. We're looking for volunteers for several different aspects of the event to make it flow as beautifully as possible. So please do volunteer if you'd like to. If people went to the Ramadan Tent Project Facebook? Yes. Ramadan Tent Project, what, Portland? Portland, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Our event page will be up on Facebook and the link is in the event information. Sadaf Asadi and Hanan Al-Zubaydi, thank, <laughs> thank you for you. being here today. Thank you so thank much you for so having much. us. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast, hear it on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, please leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. If you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be welcome. I'm